Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, host of the Feel Better Live More podcast, where I give you simple tips on things like improving sleep, energy, and gut health that will leave you feeling happier and calmer. The podcast is brought to you by JW Marriott. Traveling can really take its toll on the body, but inspired by the principles of mindfulness, JW Marriott is designed to let you focus on feeling whole. With more than 90 hotels in the world, visit jwmarriott.com for more information. This autumn, as the nights draw in, beat the cold with Now TV. Curl up with the latest blockbusters, including Bohemian Rhapsody and Hotel Mumbai. Plus, with over 40 new movies added each month, from Aquaman to How to Train Your Dragon 3, Now TV's got you covered, wherever you feel like watching. Get cosy with the latest and best movies for just $11.99 a month. Search Now TV today. 18 plus month passes auto renews unless cancelled. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Tom Kerridge from the BBC Good Food podcast, where each week we chat about seasonal ingredients, smart cooking techniques and easy recipes to make at home that are totally lush. The BBC Good Food podcast is sponsored by Victorinox. Known for the iconic Swiss army knife, Victorinox began as a cutler's workshop in the heart of Switzerland. Crafted from European walnut wood and completely Swiss made, the Swiss Modern Knife Collection has all the key tools to prepare your seasonal meals and is perfect for both professional and amateur chefs. Claim a 20% discount on orders £100 or above on victorinox.com using the code TKPOD20. Terms and conditions from the website apply. Subscribe now to enjoy the BBC Good Food podcast with me, Tom Kerridge, every week on your favourite podcast app. UK Black Pride is Europe's largest celebration for LGBTQ people of African, Asian, Caribbean, Latin American and Middle Eastern descent. And our annual celebration of our cultures, lives and lived experiences is on Sunday, the 7th of July at our new home in Hagerston Park. LGBTQ people of color have long played a defining role in this liberation movement. And UK Black Pride is a day for us to celebrate and acknowledge the tremendous contributions our people have made to not only LGBTQ life here in the UK, but around the world. UK Black Pride is a protest, a celebration, and a movement, and we are so excited to share this day with you all. We'll see you at UK Black Pride 2019 from 12 p.m. on Sunday, the 7th of July, at our new home in Hagerston Park.
Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. From her beginnings in Ghana to coming of age in South London, Linda Devo's life has been one of encountering, exploring, and constantly creating who she is. Alongside being a mother, artist, and an out-and-proud dyke, her word, she's also the founder of Kiki, a club night and conversation for QTPOC in Bristol. We explore the positive results of owning your intentions and your desires, expressing her identity through her art practice and the assertiveness that comes in middle life. We also discuss her affinity with Nichiren Buddhism, her decision to take herself out of London, and what she thinks we need to do as a community to move forward together towards a future we deserve. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Linda Devo. so much for being here, Linda. My pleasure. Also, do you want me to call you Linda today or Devo? Either, but I answer to both. Okay. <laughs> They're both my name. <laughs> I have eight names, actually, but... Go on. Okay, so I was adopted. Yeah. Uh, I only discovered this when I was 24, and I said to my mum, I'm brown, everyone else is black in the family, what's going on? And uh, she told me I was adopted, so I went rummaging to find out what the story was, and uh, discovered I had three other names, and because my mum had named me Linda Diana Devo... And um, Ifwasewa, because I'm born in Ghana, so you get a, f- a name according to what day you're born and you get a family name. So Ifwa's Friday-born girl, and Sewa was the family name I got. And then I discovered I was called Vicky, Ch- Vicky Suzanne Child, so I've ended up with eight names. <laughs> Where did Vicky Suzanne Childs come from? My birth mother called me that. Right. Hmm. So so <laughs> let's let's start there. Let's start okay, yeah. in, with going down this, finding out that at 24 that you were adopted yeah. and, and what that was like. Um. It, it was a very liberating thing, actually, because um, I'd essentially, like I said, grown up in a family where everybody around me was black. I'd imagined all sorts of things, like maybe my mum had had an affair or who knows. You know, I didn't know what the story was. Um, so to find out the truth was really good. It meant a lot of kind of a lot of things made sense, like why I didn't feel like I belonged to my family. There's all these pictures of me from when I'm really little looking at everybody. Really? Like, who are you? <laughs> uh, you know, and that sense of not quite feeling like I, I fitted made sense. You know, because biologically, yeah. these were not my blood family. So it was always a sense that you had that, that you were different mm. versus how they treated you. Nothing to do with the way they treated me, though, of being, again, grown up in a country that's predominantly uh, African people of African descent, you know, black folk and me being brown and no one really explaining why but certainly a point being made of it by everyone around me when I went to school and everything you know um yeah that 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 was all quite a, an interesting experience and so when did you come to when did you move to the UK so I was born here went to Ghana oh, when I was adopted here went to Ghana grew up there till 12 then came here and had uh, a really weird reaction from everybody brown black and white you know who were teasing me for being African and stepping out of a uh, supposedly coming out of my tree house my <laughs> being a jungle bunny and all of that crap that, uh, I mean we laugh it's horrible but, yeah. it was hideous it was hideous I lost my African accent my Ghanaian accent within three months so I could fit in you know because I was 12 years old right I wanted to fit in 
uh, yeah, so that was all quite interesting. And so you experience. moved here in 1982. 82, exactly. And, and talk to me about what you remember about that. And like I said, you know, facing, facing um, racism, well, I wouldn't call it racism really, just prejudice and all sorts of ignorance from people assuming that, you know, I'd come out of a mud hut. But, you know, I grew up in a, my, my father was a doctor, my mum was a nurse, you know, so I had, you know, I was quite middle class. I'd had a really good education, you know, taking the piss out of me because I'd stand up if I wanted to answer a question. I'd put my hand up in class. Or <laughs> the, the like the oiks from South London, <laughs> you know, <laughs> didn't get that. They just sit in their seats and speak, you know. Uh, so so I, I was brought up with a certain kind of code in terms of behaviour. And that was all, you know, rubbished by my, my peers. So I worked hard to fit in because I was 12, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then realised that actually that was a bit pointless and better just work on fitting in myself because... Because then I knew I was gay as well. Like I knew I was queer, right? So you knew you were queer by the time you moved oh back? God, by the time I was seven, there really? were showing signs. <laughs> <laughs> what, do, what do you mean showing signs? Mm. <laughs> I don't know if I want to share. Okay. <laughs> you know, fiddling with your sure. age group, but sure. my, my fiddlings were always with girls. Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And then, um, and then when I came to... You know, I tried having boyfriends and, you know, it wasn't a sex thing. I, I couldn't have sex with anything, you know, <laughs> if I fancy it. Yeah. You know, it was more about kind of emotional attachment. wasn't really happening with boys. If I had anything with boys, it'd be like, I'll oh, see you later. No, no attachment. Whereas with a girl, it immediately sort of heart stuff would happen. Obviously, that was not going down well either in 1982 <laughs> with my peers. <laughs> so I kept that one quiet and uh, yeah, I finally sort of came out. I had my first relationship when I was 16 and I, maybe 17 actually, 17. Do you remember what that felt like? Uh, yeah, I knew I wanted this woman. She was 12 years older than me. I made it very clear. It seems to be my way. I've let everyone know. <laughs> my cards are fully on the table. <laughs> and then it's just a matter of convincing them that I'm right and they need to succumb. That's, wow. That was my pattern. <laughs> well, you know, you, you know what I mean. Yeah, I always totally. know when I desire someone. Yeah. Right? So I always tell them because I find it best. I love that. <laughs> I can't contain I do it, not. right? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I find containing it makes for weird, perverted behavior. It sort of comes out sideways, you know, with no, you know, with no control, with no intention. Whereas if I say what it is I want, then everyone knows where we're at. I mean, you've just said that like it's this casual thing, but this kind of this, you you effectively owned your from a young age mm. from, from your teens have owned your desire, and it sounds like known what to do with it. I was probably exposed to sex younger than I would have chosen to be, but I've always I've I've always had a memory of being really sensual and into bodies, you know, and finding bodies really attractive, whoever's wearing them, you know. Obviously, not everybody's body, but sure, of I, I generally, I mean, I mean, I'm an artist, so I find great beauty and even things that are not that attractive are fascinating. So I guess I'm, I'm quite a sensual being, and I'm now 48. So obviously, this sounds like you know very polished, but I think I've come to know myself to be that's my pattern. You know, if I've fancied somebody or I want someone, I tell them because I find it's best. <laughs> I'm just sitting here, mouth agape. <laughs> 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 I definitely don't do that. Do you not? What do you do? I, I, you mentioned uh, you sit on it and it comes out sideways. Mm. That's, yeah, that's my MO. Yeah. And before I know it, I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Right? <laughs> I'd rather just say rather than have it coming out 
in in you know weird ways or like you know un, un what's the word sort of just you know ugly <laughs> well i think unspoken desire or unacted upon desire as well manifests not just sideways but it like it feels like it turns into something bad it becomes a bit um you know the kind of secrecy thing you know where you feel like it feels like a secret i, I don't like that it feels like potentially dangerous because then you know something about how you feel about someone but you're not sharing that with that person then what's so that person is almost like an object it feels like they're outside of that circle. Whereas if I tell them, then they know what my intent is. And if it's not okay and they don't want to know, that's fine, but at least they know where I'm coming from. But if I don't tell them, then I know something about how I feel about them. Do you know what? I don't know if no, I'm you're explaining. making so much sense. Mm. You know, I know if people have wanted me and they don't say, I could feel it. Yes. And it starts to feel weird. Yes. Like, ugh. Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> yes. You know, and it starts to feel a bit stalkerish because they, <laughs> they've, you know, yeah. And often they'll tell me, and I'll run in the opposite direction because I'm used to be the one who's really upfront and says what I want. Often get what I want in terms of in terms of relationships. Whenever I've had any strong desire for someone, uh, it's often reciprocated because it's usually not a one way street, right? Yeah, there have been yeah, a couple of times yeah. when it's been very much just me. <laughs> in my own mind and that that's what kind of illustrated to me that actually it's there's something not right with not saying because often when it's not been okay is when I've not said anything and I've just had this desire and it's brewing away and then eventually it just blurts out and then it's not reciprocated and it's just like Ugh. because I, I guess for me what I discovered was a thing would would build up in my mind and in my heart it would all build up but the person's not given me any feedback yeah. So then by the time they catch up with where I'm at, I'm way ahead of them. And they're like, whoa, <laughs> back off. <laughs> Don't want to know. <laughs> That's been my experience. So, yeah. Hmm. I love that. <laughs> you said that you're an artist. I am. What is your medium? Um, currently sculpture. Um, I seem to be making lots of maquettes for very large scale sculptures. What's a maquette? Uh, it's like a small model. It's okay. a scaled down version of of uh, whatever it is. And I, um, I'm doing my master's in design. I've always taken a very practical route through because I was a mother quite young. So I was thinking about how to raise him, how to make money. So I run a business as a furniture maker and carpenter for 10 years or so in London. Um, and, and then I've been teaching for the last 13 and giving lots of GCSE students ideas. To get, I must have about 100 product design GCSEs by now, wow. all the ones I've kind of you know supported and seen through their their exams and things. Uh, so last year I decided it was time to just reconnect with my own practice. Um, so I took up an MA in design, and what's actually coming out is lots of art. I'm, I'm making these pieces that are quite personal, but also quite political. Uh, so yeah, that's a really interesting process, and I'm very excited about what's going to happen with it all. I've got a fire under my arse. You know, I'm 48, nearly 49. <laughs> I'm like, I want to I wanna get out there. I want my work to be seen. I, I want to be an academic. I just think, uh, yeah, I just feel like another kind of phase of life is, I've just got a fire under my ass. Like and, I said. and so how does, the, how does the, pol the political and the personal kind of manifest itself in your art? Um, what I'm discovering is the process of making art. It's really, really interesting. For instance, so there's a piece I'm making now, which initially started off with kind of panels on the wall that you could, because I'm arthritic, uh, that... Uh, I've got all these like bits and pieces that I used to break up lactic acid in my, you know, I've got foam roller and I've got a 
ball, you know, spikes on it. And I got a bit sick of all the things. I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if I had a panel on the wall that I could push into and it would vibrate or give me warmth or whatever it is my body needs. So I don't have to have small stuff, get rid of things and just have the building be the thing that I use. Um, so I started down this route of exploring that and I ended up making this piece about <laughs> myself uh, in terms of my heritage, because it turns out my father discovered my father's from Barbados. My mother's English. I grew up in Ghana, so my mother's Ghanaian who brought me up. And so that and my father's from Togo. So I've got this connection, like the, literally the transatlantic yeah, slave yeah, trade yeah. is my life, spans that. So I, I started making this piece looking at motion, uh, trying to get kind of piston type motion, thinking about something in the wall that would punch back at you, you know, that you could lean into and it would massage you, essentially. And I ended up making this thing with syringes, um, pushing fluid into some cases and then sucking the fluid back up. Uh, and uh, I ended up then making a camouflage because I'm obsessed with army clothing and I nearly joined the army because <laughs> of army. I know it's ridiculous, but I love that kind I'm, of all I the accoutrement of war, but I don't like the effect of war. Like I don't yeah. like the killing bit, but I like everything that goes with it. So um, so I started thinking about what I was going to cover this object with that's got three pistons driving fluid into it. And I was thinking about what syringes are about. So sort of supply and demand and, you know, life, the life-giving fluids that we have in our bodies. So I, so I started making this camouflage to cover the whole thing in. I thought about myself. So I was going to make, I'm making my own camouflage just based on the maps of Barbados, England and Ghana. And... Uh, I generally tend to veer away from that red, gold and green kind of aesthetic, but I actually thought I'm going to break some rules and do break my own rule of not doing that really obvious thing that's associated with blackness. And But I'm going to make this map red, gold and green, red for Barbados, but it seems like sort of flocking because, you know, the Caribbean sort of obsession with flocking of a certain generation, you know, the flocked wallpaper and all of that. <laughs> so the, the little Barba Barbadoses are in red flocking. <laughs> and the Ghana's gold, because for obvious reasons. And the little England is green, you know, because the green and pleasant land, the whole kind of Jerusalem song. So I've got this camouflage that's going over the whole piece. And the thing's called Blood, Sweat and Tears. And it's about the transatlantic slave trade and myself and my own heritage and my story in, in relation to all of that. And uh, there you go. So <laughs> I've gone from like making wall panels from arthritis to <laughs> making a piece of art. So yeah, so so this is all like fa hugely fascinating to me wow. that that kind of thought process that happens. What are you discovering about yourself as as part of this, and, and not necessarily the way the way of working, mm. but what's what? Because obviously art stirs things up, I think, mm. right? And so what are you? What, what's being stirred up for you? Um, identity and bodies and how our systems work and the connections between all of that. You know, my place in in an environment where I'm one, but there are, well, I'm one of many, but so we're all connected, connect connections between us as individuals, the sort of, uh, the joining up of the land underneath the sea, you know, the, the bits of land that we're all fighting over, actually joined up underneath the sea, and it's, the land's nobody's, we're all going to die and leave it behind, and yet we do this nationalist thing, all of those kind of wars and battles that happen internally and externally I'm, I'm really really interested in all of that and the kind of power of the individual in relation to the state uh, all of those things are just bubbling away in my mind I feel like, like a really fertile brain <laughs> that I wasn't expecting I knew it were interests to me obviously I'm I'm a turned on switched on person right so I'm, I, I've been practicing Buddhism since I was 19 so 
th those are all conversations that were happening in my head, but they're really like, they're just like fertile ground and they're, they're, everything seems to have been, you know, woken up. So I feel really vital and finding it difficult to kind of edit sometimes my brain because it's just all going off at once. Yeah. What drew you to Buddhism? What took I me feel to like Buddhism? we're going all, the, all over the place, I know, but I'm just. Right? <laughs> It's just, I hope that's okay. It's of just course. fascinating <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, well, what brought me to Buddhism? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a Christian household. None of that sat well with me apart from Jesus. I really like Jesus. And I like... As like a person? As a human being. Yeah. As, you know, in terms of his lofty desire to relieve people of suffering, you know. Yeah. He, he was a bit misguided trying to die for everyone's sins because everyone has to die for their own, right? <laughs> Preach. <laughs> <laughs> to take responsibility for your own crap, right? <laughs> so, um, so I thought he was a bit misguided there, but lots of it didn't sit right with me in terms of all the exclusion of this, that, and the other person. I just clearly was going to be stoned to death. I was a horror of Babylon. I would not have fitted. I, obviously, I went to church and I liked all the hymns and I liked all of that kind of thing and the communion, the community of it. But um, I essentially discarded it. I had my son when I was 16 and a half. Okay. Out of wedlock. I was like my mother's, everything that my mother would have wanted, I was not. I was not a pretty girl who liked to wear dresses. You know, I was up a tree or I it, it just didn't fit. So uh, I had my son, like I said, when I was quite young. And then um, I'd come out and started uh, working at the Lesbian Archives in London when it still existed. Met this woman who was an American poet called Linda King, who introduced me to Buddhism. It's just because I said to her, like, there's something really interesting and different about you. And she said, oh, I practice Buddhism. I, I practice Nichiren Buddhism specifically. Uh, so I asked her what it was about. And I was like, ha, that's the thing. That's, that's how I'm trying to live my life. But I haven't got a practice. And I recognize that it's all well and good having a philosophy. But if there's nothing to feed it and drive it, then how do you enact it? How do you put it into daily life? So she told me about Nichiren Buddhism. I thought, I'm going to practice that. But I didn't want anything to do with Buddhists because I had this funny idea about what they might be like, these they, those people. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I happened to meet uh, another woman who became a very close friend of mine. She's my sister, essentially, because uh, I, I wanted to take some photographs of black women, black lesbians specifically, so I could um, uh, just see some reflections of myself and start to work out my own identity through that. We met, she'd just started practicing Buddhism as well, and she kept tricking me into going to Buddhist meetings. She'd be like, oh, we've got to go and fetch something at this house, come with me. <laughs> and we'd go, and it'd be like a house full of people practicing Buddhism. I was like, so I, um, I discovered they weren't all terrible or scary. And uh, I, I started to get up. So I was 19 then, I've been chanting now for 30 years this year. Wow. Yeah. And, so, and so what's different um, about Nichiren Buddhism? Great question. So, um, God, it's a bit of a potted history of Buddhism. But uh, oh, so Shakyamuni Buddha, in my understanding, is he was this prince who had been kind of segregated from daily life, living in a palace, but was a deep thinker and would sort of sit in the palace and look over the palace walls and watch the rest of the populace going about their business. And oh, I that think sounds he, fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? He wasn't satisfied with that. <laughs> he wanted to go out there with the people and see why it was there was, you know... People looked like they were suffering and old right. age and all that kind of... So he had lots of questions and uh, he went off, left the palace and went out seeking questions about, you know, answers to why why people suffer, what, what's it all about. And I believe as he was learning, he was teaching people according to his understanding 
and also according to the cultural mores at the time. So if you, so that's why you have some Buddhisms that you know, if you're a woman, you can't be a Buddha, for instance. Or if you were a person who was really intelligent, you'd have to, you know, you'd scorch the seeds of Buddhahood because you couldn't, you know, because you were so much in your brain that you couldn't have enough faith to practice Buddhism and all of this kind of what he calls expedient means. So they were like according to the time and according to the understanding. So a bit like if I want to teach you maths, I wouldn't start at algebra. I'd start with right. basic arithmetic. I give up after a while. So I'm it, not very good at math. <laughs> <laughs> I can't teach maths either. I get angry. <laughs> so he, he was doing this journey and teaching people. And that's why you get some Buddhists who... Um, for, uh, cause, uh, for instance, at one point he thought desire was what caused people to suffer, right? So just eradicate desire. Right. And then realized that, that wouldn't fly because it means you'd die. You wouldn't eat and would die, for instance. When you have desire for food, you'd ignore it. and you'd, That's no good. Or right. sex, we wouldn't procreate, etc. So um, his final teaching after many, many years was the Lotus Sutra, which stated that all actually all living beings are worthy of respect. All of life has... The potential for Buddhahood and Buddhahood is essentially courage, compassion and wisdom and the life force to live and to create that and that our purpose in life is to be happy. So that that is what Nichiren Buddhism's tenets are. So but essentially you had all these different forms of Buddhism going on all at once. Uh, and that was back in the whatever BC, many, many hundred thousands of years ago. And in 12th century Japan, uh, in 12th century Japan, this priest Nichiren, uh, who as a young man had joined the priesthood, went to all the different temples, read through all the different sutras and identified the Lotus Sutra as the one for this time because he recognized what that journey was. Um, There was another sutra after that, actually, that said, what I said in the Lotus Sutra is right. It's a sort of, uh, what's the word, like a stamp of of authenticity like that thing there that's what you all need to practice from this moment on um so Nichiren came along and said actually all of you lot are doing the wrong thing you know you're causing people to suffer people can be a Buddha in this lifetime but of course the priests and the authorities at the time liked the power that they had they liked the fact that the populace were paying them to you I'll pay you you do my prayers for me right so they liked that power they tried to chop off his head. They tried to do all sorts of things. Anyway, essentially, he just kept going, kept remonstrating with the government, telling them, you know, you need to change, the fundamentally change the way society works. Come on, uh, an activist. Yeah, he was an absolute, a, total, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, anyway, he acquired some followers who recognised what, what he was saying and the validity of his teachings. And they started to establish this practice. So we, what we do is we chant the title of the Lotus Sutra, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. In the calling up of that, you draw out of your own life courage, compassion, wisdom. And how the practice works is by chanting that you're awakening your, that's, that's your intention, right? So in the morning and evening, I do my morning and evening prayers. That's the intention I set out in the days to create value with my life, to basically take away suffering, bring joy. There's all these wonderful job titles of a Buddha in, in, in reality. Okay. You don't have to chop off any bits of yourself. You could just be as you are, creating value whatever that is so it's just quite a transformative practice because you essentially look at your your stuff what we call karmic tendencies to i don't know be really angry or whatever it is our life state is and transform it so there's no there's nothing that you need to discard it's like trans is transformation so right, out of suffering right, right. The potential, the seeds for joy are in the roots of suffering, right? It's the same thing. So nam myoho renge kyo. Nam means I devote. Myoho is the mystic nature of life and the, the, the 
the like manifest bits, so the bits that we see and we don't see, life, death, all those dualities. Renge, cause and effect. Renge uh, is symbolized by the lotus flower, uh, which is the only plant I believe that flowers and seeds at the same time. So you make a cause, the effect is there, just waiting for the right circumstances to manifest. And Kyo is how everything's connected by vibration. It's the thread of life, wow. including our own cells. So when we chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, you're like awakening your life. A bit like if I say to anyone who knows you, oh, I saw Josh today, I went and did his podcast, Josh Rivers. Anyone who knows you will, everything they know about you is called up in your name. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? so, yeah. I wish it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. Everything I've seen is lovely. <laughs> I really enjoy following you on Instagram. Thank like, you. Oh, you make me cackle. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, that's how it works. By chanting Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, you're drawing out of your life those qualities. Wow. And that's actually a really wisdom. powerful association to make as well that when you. S- just like when you speak someone's name, mm. everything that everything about them comes up mm-hmm. in your mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I feel relaxed just speaking to you. Oh, <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'm glad so to have beautiful. that effect. <laughs> um, so I wanted to speak to you about labels. And I'm not sure how I want to get there. Hmm. But I'm curious, you know, coming of age in the 80s, mm-hmm. there's obviously the AIDS crisis. There's this, what I imagine is still a vibrant um, queer community. And you're kind of coming into yourself and, and the labels that we used to describe ourselves then are transformed now. Mm. Queer is being reclaimed, mm. stud, dyke, butch. Mm. It all changes. So and I don't know. It's not a question. I'm just, maybe I want to speak about identity in, in a larger space and mm. maybe how you've learned to exist as Linda. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's big, sorry. It is a bit big. I, I mean, I can only relate it to my journey. Um, so, like I said, I had my start in my first relationship when I was 17 with essentially what was a heterosexual woman. And that was quite, um, it was quite a closed thing. You know, we were just in a bubble, me and her. Uh, I'd sort of lost all my school friends. I hadn't really made any new friends yet other than my fellow young mothers. So it was just this really weird time where I was just in this close relationship with one individual who wasn't really on a scene. And that went on for about a year and a half. And then when she left me, because she actually wanted to, I need to go and have babies right. thing. And I was like, you know, a bit heartbroken for a bit. And then I bought myself, uh, what did I, I went to Gaze the Word and I went oh, to yeah. Silver Moon, which used to live, which used to exist on Charing Cross Road, which was a less, sort of mostly lesbian feminist bookshop. Thank God for those places. Because, you know, what... And now it's completely different, right? Mm. If you want to find people, just go online. But I, I got um, a pink, was it the pink paper? And I went through the back, the ads, and found a, an advert for On Our Backs Calendar, which is a lesbian sex magazine, sort of feminist sex magazine from San Francisco. I don't know if it's still going. Uh, for sale in London, <laughs> so with a phone number. <laughs> That sort of thing just does. Well, maybe it does. I don't know. I haven't gone looking. <laughs> I phoned this number up and found found uh, this group of women who were running Quim, which is a, a lesbian magazine, mm. sex magazine from the eighties. Well, so I landed on my feet, right? And I'd also taken myself off to the lesbian archives. So I, I create. I found this network. So I started hanging out with the Quim lot. I wrote a couple of pieces for the Quim magazine when it had just come out. Uh, 
went to some parties, went to Chain Reaction, which was like a lesbian S&M club in the 80s. Fucking brilliant. And terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. I remember just being this baby lesbian who was just like, oh my God. <laughs> and and I was I was definitely like, I would call my, oh, I, well, I always struggled with the word lesbian for some reason, yeah, just because I don't that. like the sound of it. Don't like the sound of it. <laughs> no, you know, people from Lesbos are lesbians, right? Um, and I just sounded a bit, it's always been used as an insult. When I was growing up, it was, oh, you lesbian, dirty lesbian. So I didn't like the sound of it. I found it a bit, you know, excoriating, you know, a bit um, a bit acidic. It just made oh. me, you know, a bit like when you drop vinegar on an oyster. Whenever I heard that <laughs> word, it made me go, Ugh. which is a real shame. So I like dyke. That was my label. Right. I took on I am a dyke, you know. And do you still use that? Um, I do still use that. Not very much, but I do still use it. Um, and then I discovered that, again, I didn't fit quite into the lesbian lesbian scene because I don't know why. Many reasons, just... There wasn't much space for people of colour, I found. There were some black lesbians, definitely, who I, you know, um, I connected with. Like I said, I did this little photography project. Mm. I didn't actually, didn't get very far because I found my buddy and that was it. We were like really tight and we spent time then raising our kids together and all of that, putting plays on and things. Um, <laughs> where I discovered my, a large part of my identity was going out dancing at trade. So I was a trade baby. At 19, I discovered partying and hanging out with gay boys and I absolutely that that's from that that was like another aspect so I had this kind of grounding with the lesbian feminists S&M lot and then I had the the gay the gay black gay men who were partied with at trade and queer nation and all of you know um yeah queer nation and uh, so that that for me just brought me so much joy and made me feel really body confident and you know it's just like, it's a bit like having your feet. I just felt again like really rooted in those two places, and I, I did that for about a year and a half. But it wasn't really sustainable. Every weekend, <laughs> partying, yeah, 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 trying to raise a kid and trying to do a degree. So the degree fell fell by the wayside, and I had to kind of wind it back and focus on raising my son. Um, um, because at about the same time, sort of remove myself from my mother's house because I couldn't continue to be there, and got a place with my son and then spent some time recovering from <laughs> from the 20 23 or 4 years up to that point you know I had to just sort of stand still for a minute um and in that time you know I was by now practicing buddhism and sort of dealing with some of my traumas from when I was a young person and a child and having a, a child a child when I was still a kid myself essentially mm. um and sort of consolidating myself a bit and then I just kind of got on with my daily life. I think I, I, I tend to have long-term relationships. So I'd had this one and a half year relationship and then I went into a, a, a six year relationship and had then had a, a small community of friends around me. We were all quite comfortable in ourselves. We were all young and gay and proud and all the rest of it. Um, and then I think, yeah, so just out of that, I've, I've come to the conclusion like I said before, uh, related to the thing about being African in England and then being brown in Africa and not, all those things have not quite ever been in the, the the majority. So not ever feeling that thing of being in a majority, apart from when I went to trade, for instance, or even when I went to lesbian sex conference, I got chucked out with my friend because Why? we asked questions that some of the feminists weren't happy to have right. been asked and it felt unsafe to them. 
and I still don't get I still don't get why. So 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 I've had this experience over and over again of not quite fitting in, and where I fitted in most was not sustainable because it was off it was drug fueled, right. you know, and all those wonderful connections I was making, heart to heart connections. Actually, I didn't know they were they were not they were built on ecstasy. They were built on sand. You just weren't solid triggered yeah i know right i know you know and that (laughs) and i wouldn't be without it i wouldn't be without it because they were valuable experiences you Mm. know and i I, that feeling of being so free will never go away now i've got it it's deeply embedded um so yeah so i think um i spent quite a bit of time just recognizing that all of those things of trying to fit into things not that not working taught me something about just standing on my own feet standing creating a community with myself so so if you know i do things like you know you know i'm not very good at small talk so um i when i'd go to work for for a few years i wouldn't work with anyone i just worked as a self-employed person on my own i had one partner that i worked with um making you know making stuff and a a plumber that i'd work with who became a very good friend would grunt at each other under the sink you know (laughs) fucking pass me the spanner etc <laughs> so so those are my two work partners but that was not a constant I was I was on my own doing my thing because I knew where I was with myself um, and then I had to take a job as a teacher because I hurt my knee very badly and so I'd be like in the staff room feeling really awkward and then I so so it was at this point that again that thing of not fitting in came up uh, so I had to really question and like interrogate what is that not fitting in thing again it's happened over and over again in my life. So I do things like walk into the staff room and instead of immediately clustering with people to do small talk, which I find really, it, it makes you feel feel comfortable for a minute, but actually, no, it doesn't. So I do things like stand on my own and like ride through that discomfort. Uh, and what would happen is people would come and talk to me. So that taught me that you just just stand with yourself, and like be in your own space, breathe through the bit that makes people do the small talk thing, which is, I'm not dis- dissing small talk, it has its place. I don't think any of us like that, yeah. But, uh, you know, just, yeah. So, I've forgotten the question. Yeah, no, <laughs> you're, you're answering it. Well, I started we'll talk talking about, about labels. labels, but then it kind of more morphed into, uh, you know, how you've learned to stand in mm. yourself, which is mm. kind of what I was getting at. Mm. Yeah, so the label thing, back to the, because it is connected to labels. I, I found, like, I haven't really ever fitted into any one... That's why I like queer so much because it just covers everything. I am definitely brown. That's uh, you know, you yeah. Know, do you identify indisputable. as black? I am, politically, yes. Okay. Because politically, yes. But and does that political blackness include all nine white people, or do you mean you? Because you know, there's the political blackness of hmm. the '70s and '80s, which is all non-white people, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you say politically black, do you mean that That's blackness? what I mean. Right. That's what I mean. Though I also recognize that as a, a mixed heritage person, people treat me differently to they would than they would black people, yeah. people who've, who've got black skin. So uh, that's a really, you know, and that, I've had that from black people and from white people. Yeah. So, so again, you know, that is definitely my label. And I decidedly started calling myself brown because I am brown and and there are all of the nuances that come with that so it's good to recognize that and be upfront about it um and then the the female the whole gender thing is a really interesting thing so my take on that is that basically we're made all made of male female 
chromosomes were made of man and woman and therefore we are all man and woman to some extent right mm. so my mum's always teased me about being butch I've always been called a tomboy I've used to get read as sir a lot when I was younger I'd get called sir students still my kids still call me sir without taking they're not taking the piss they just read my energy sometimes as quite male um and I, I guess I take up my space. My mum says I drive like a man, all of those things. So I'm just like, okay, I am, you know, and I used to be really ashamed of that. I used to try and, you know, I couldn't help how it was. Right. And I liked presenting as male because it gave me protection, right, from men. You know, I didn't want the male gaze. So it gave me great protection, heterosexual male gaze. I didn't want it. So it gave me protection from that. But it also drew attention. You know, if I walked into a girl's toilet, classic, you know, walking into lady women's toilets and getting, you know, people looking at me funny or whatever. So so all of those things have been navigated all the it's exhausting. It's actually mm. exhausting. Just just talking about it, just realizing how on on alert one has to be all the time to and, you know, kind of reading people around you all the time that I think maybe white people don't have to white heterosexual people don't really have to deal with. No. No. But I'm sure they must have something to deal with, right? As yeah. individuals, everyone's got some neuroses, sure. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I hope that they also have to deal with stuff because it is really tiring. Anyway, I've, I've now come to the conclusion that I'm just, I'm just a human being, right? And um, in this life, I happen to inhabit this body. Um, I've come to terms with the fact that I have got women's body parts because <laughs> when I was younger, come to terms with I, could feel, I could feel the penis and I used to stroke my beard. But I don't have one. So I, uh, the sense that I've made of this recently is that because in Buddhism, again, we believe in, you know, um, life is eternal. And we have this lifespan as this person. When that body has come to its end, our life consciousness returns back to the universe. And then when the circumstances are right, we're reborn in another body. Wow. So the conclusion of the sort of thing I've been kicking around in my head is that maybe all of that feeling that I was having when I was younger of not fitting in that body or this body um, was because I still maybe had a memory. My life had a memory of what I was before. Um, <clears throat> now as a 48 year old, 49 year old, I'm thinking I, I quite like the ability to play with all of those. Oh, it's quite rich, right? I can dress up, I can, put a, I can go out male, I can go out female. I've got all of that stuff going on I can go in out as a hybrid creature whatever it's all available so I find that really exciting so you said in our pre-chat that you're loving the assertiveness and the taking no prisoner state of mind that comes with middle-aged life mm. though you would like new knees <laughs> <laughs> mm, yes. talk to me about that that assertiveness and, and why that changes in middle life I think just getting to know who I am you know like I'm creating myself Having that agency to understand that I'm creating myself, I'm writing my story. I don't have to take on anything that other people put on me, you know, or I can take on what I want and what I don't want I can discard. That's great freedom. I feel really, you know, it's like I'm absolutely responsible for my life and therefore I have freedom to do what I want with it, to create it as I wish it to be. I'm less concerned. Obviously, I do care about what people think because I'm just I'm not doing a fuck you to everything <laughs> fucking all I don't care you know no, yeah. no it's, it's it's more about just I I have to live my life and therefore I am the one who's judge and jury of my own life I don't need anyone else's judgment unless I seek them because I respect that person's opinion but short of that then I don't really need to take on other people's stuff because I know what suffering it's caused me taking on other people's Oof, stuff yeah. throughout my life. So why would I continue to do that to myself when I know I don't have to? 
So when I get negativity coming up, internal stuff coming up, I have to look at where's that coming from? Sit with myself and look at myself. Where is it coming from? Is it my own stuff that I've taken on from other people and I've internalized it? Because I'm still dealing with my own internal negative, you know, some negative feelings about myself, some body shame stuff, all of those things are still there. So when, but, but they're much less so because I've been working through them. So when they come up, I look at what's set that off. What's that all about? Is it mine or is it someone else's? That kind of thing. You're smiling beautifully. Just... <laughs> <laughs> it's resonating. It's resonating Good. beautifully. And I think, um, you know, so sometimes in these conversations, every time actually in, in these conversations for Busy Being Black, mm. there's something that the other person, because this is, this is an exploration, right? Mm. It's me asking questions about things that I'm curious about and that I think the Busy Being Black community is, might mm. be curious about themselves. And so that smile is one of recognition because mm. that, that not caring what people think or rather caring more what you think. Mm. Yes. And, and taking the time to assess and evaluate and mm. question if that's yours or some, someone else's mm. um, is something I'm working on, mm. albeit what feels like very slowly. Well, I think it is a slow process. I think it is a slow process. It just is. I think it takes a lifetime to get to know yourself. You know, never mind all the other people. And that's why I don't, you know, I don't engage in polyamory, for instance, because it's like, it's really, you, t- you have to get to know yourself. Getting to know one other person's like really challenging. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really, for me, yeah, it, it feels is. like it would be really easy to shag loads of people <laughs> on one level and not have any... Depth. I, I don't want anyone polyamorous to please attack me. Please, <laughs> I don't want. Yeah. I don't. You know, I'm not. Again, I'm not judging anyone else's thing. I'm talking about my own feeling about something. Like I know when I had several lovers at once, how difficult that was on one level because I I like to connect. I like depth, but also how easy it could be just to do that and flit through life. It would have been for me to just you know have lots of sex with everybody and not really engage with any of them. And that's got its own attractions. But life's, I'm busy. I'm busy with my own process in terms of my, like, evolving myself. And I've got a partner. We've been going out, we've seen each other for 10 years. She's very busy with her life. I'm busy with mine. So what precious time we have together. It's like, it's it's little and it's precious. So, you know, I don't know how I got to that. But, yeah, something about... um, what we put our attention to mm. and how much attention one's got time and attention one's got to give to anything. Hmm. Huh. Do you have an internal gauge that tells you what to pay attention to? Or give attention to, rather? If I'm able to be quiet enough, because I'm, I'm, my life's quite full and I think I'm not very good at filtering um, or I, I, I kind of everything I pay high attention to. So I work with teenagers who are really challenging and troubled. They've got lots of stuff going on in their lives and I'm really present. And everything I do, I'm, I feel like I'm super present. So sometimes I have to take some time just to stare, you know, lie in bed and stare at the ceiling. Uh, and that's where I have just seeing where like t- my temperature is in terms of internally how I feel about where I'm at. And right at this point in my life, I'm just so excited all the time. I think I've been like that most of my life, but just feels really like oh, just so much energy. And I would like new knees so I could get around <laughs> and do the stuff I need to do without pain. <laughs> so talk to me about the the move from London to Bristol. Mm. 
And I so, leave that quite broad, so you can yeah. go wherever you want with it. Yeah. So I, I um, grew up in Ghana, in in uh, Tema, which is next to Accra, which is the main capital. I had tons of space around me. I spent most of my days outdoors when I wasn't at school, um, and and then moved to London when I was twelve, and just immersed myself in that city culture. And London was quite, I suppose, quite quiet then. And obviously, it's just got progressively busier and busier and busier. And I lived in Labrick Grove. Um, first on top of the Great Western Railway lines, I had about, I don't know, like 10 years of racket from the trains. Then I moved a street up to Kensal Road and was sandwiched between Kensal Road and Harrow Road, both of which are really busy roads. I don't think I slept properly for maybe 20 something years. And I knew it suddenly occurred to me like I'm not really cut out for this kind of level of busyness as it got more and more intense. I couldn't get on the tube anymore comfortably without having a little panic attack every time. Uh, I cycled to work, so that was great. I was on the canal cycling back and forth every day. And then whenever I had to come into the centre, I was like, just filled with fear, actually overwhelmed with the volume. Like I said, I've not got a very good filter. I connect with people all the time, but there are thousands of people out there, right, every day. And I just could not cope any longer. And so I recognised it was time to leave. I started scouting, like every summer I'd go out of London and see where where do I want to live, you know. So I went to the South East, kept going to Wales, I love Wales. I was thinking it's a bit far, too many sheep, too, too, not quite enough people, you know. I wanted to be near my son still because um, he lives in London. And uh, I kept finding myself going to Devon, sort of south, southwest and Wales. And I thought, I'll go and check out Bristol. I didn't have any connections there. Um, and I, I happened to have met Lucy, who's now my partner, at a Women, Women in Tune, which is a music festival. She's a musician. She plays guitar. Uh, I met her had no designs on her whatsoever, had come out of this relationship that I was really glad to be out of. And I thought, right, I'm gonna go to Bristol and investigate Bristol. And my friend said, go and stay with Lucy, she'll look after you, she'll put you up. So I was like, great, I could stay with someone who knows the city. Went to stay at hers. And over the course of that weekend, something really weird happened. Like uh, at this point I was like, yeah, I'm gonna have loads of sex. I'm just gonna be free and like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'd been doing that successfully for three months and then I went to stay with Lucy and she um, jumped me. <laughs> I hate it when I say that. But essentially we started this bit of a passionate thing and uh, but I was like, no, I don't want a relationship. So she'd come and visit me in London. And then I was like months later, I was like, actually, she's really lovely because this is what happens, right? If I've shagged the same person more than twice, <laughs> start to get, a, you know, start to get attached. <laughs> That's what happens. So, um, so yeah, so we began a relationship and then four years later, I was like, right, I'm ready to leave London. And my mum, who at this point was 78, lived in Wandsworth, my son is in Labrick Grove. So I was like, how, how do I let my, get my son to have his flat and, and take my mum with me maybe? So that's exactly what happened. You know, I was able to, my mum agreed to come with me and we got a place together in Bristol and I've been there since. So, so I went there essentially for a quieter life, supposedly. <laughs> and have you gotten the quieter life? No, <laughs> I'm really busy, right? I'm really, I'm doing my MA. We started, oh yeah, so this, so I got to Bristol. I was like, hmm, very segregated city. All the rich white folk are in Clifton or in Redland and like the Somalians are in Barton Hill and the Caribbean community in St. Paul's. And it's all really, wow. felt really segregated. Um, so I wasn't sure. I sort of poked around there for four years and then decided actually I found three places. There was like a shop called the, Spi- uh, the Sweet Mart, which has got like a wall of spices. I thought, right, I can eat here. So that's good. <laughs> good sign. Yeah, I don't want to be traveling to London to get plantain. <laughs> that would <not>, suck. <laughs> so that was that. So I found somewhere to eat. 
Uh, and then um, I went into the Plough, which is this pub in Eastern, and everybody's in the Plough, black, white, brown, Asian, everybody's in the Plough. So I was like, right, there's somewhere I can hang out. I, hard, I don't go there very often, but I know it's there. Anyway, so I, that was it. Those two places sealed it for me. So I set about finding a house, found a house, moved there, and then I, I loved it. It's just great. Yeah. But then went to go and investigate the scene and discovered at the time there was like a little bit of Bristol that's got two gay pubs in it and one club called OMG. Seriously, <laughs> OMG. Sorry, OMG. <laughs> And I went in, it's this cavernous place with playing Euro trash and I couldn't, I was like, no, can't, can't, can't be coming here. This is not for me. Uh, found some women who were doing a music scene, but again, all white. So some, so I was their DJ and I'd have to call friends from London to come. So I wasn't the only black and brown in the village. So that was like, oh man. Okay. So I asked people like, where are all the black lesbian and gay people like where are they where's the lgbtq community and apparently they'd all run away to london or birmingham or manchester or what they there were very few in bristol in fact i was named two people i was told there was black mandy and black mandy yeah i really yeah and lorraine ayansu who died right so two lesbians were named to me one of them was dead. one was dead right one and the other's called black mandy yeah, one's called black mandy <laughs> it's just too bad um so yeah it felt a bit like moving to london in the 80s for the kind of lack of diversity. Um, so I, as like I mentioned, I DJ. So I, I did this event at the watershed DJing for Whitney Houston's film, a biopic that came out. Um, and I, I met this guy called Edson, who's a poet and writer, Dr. Burton. And we became friends and I'd moan to him, where are all the black gay people? And he was like, oh, I know this person and that. So he named me a couple of people and I kept moaning to him about the same thing. So he knew this house DJ. He said, maybe we should do something together and collaborate. You play, both of you play and we'll have a night. As it turned out, this guy never got involved, but we had a meeting and two other people came, one from London who's uh, uh, called Imven and uh, Sharifa. So myself, Sharifa and Edson and Inven planned a night. We got access to the venue for three months on a th one Thursday a month. And we put on a, a kind of tester event and people turned up. And this, is, this became this, Kiki this Bristol. This became Kiki, right? So we named it Kiki Bristol because, you, well, you know what Kiki means, uh -huh. right? It's an opportunity to let off steam and have a ball, right? And so we wanted to create a social space where people could just come, have some food, do a bit of chat about, you know, what the ass, Donald Trump's bloody president, how did that happen? That kind of thing, you know, just have a, and then have a bit of a dance after. So we had this three month tester and it went really well. We couldn't really advertise because of the nature of Bristol being this small city. And um, the reason why a lot of people leave is because the tr quite traditional views right. of their communities they're coming from. So a lot of people aren't necessarily out so we didn't really advertise anywhere. It was all very much word of mouth. We had a closed Facebook page and it was just literally approaching places like Pride Without Borders and just letting them know we exist. So we had quite these sort of quite small, low key nights for three months. And then once we knew there was a demand, we then set about putting on, we had like a couple of film events. We've had sort of film screenings and a little party after. And then we got involved with Pride who supported us uh, by giving us some money to put on, a, a, you know, have some performers come and do an after pride party at the O2. And that was really successful. It was open for everybody to come, but we curated the night. And what else have we done? 
and we just had a pride block. So in the March, there was a Kiki block. And at the end of the March, we just took up space in the kind of outside the We the Curious, which is the science museum in the square. I had my like a PA strapped to my bike. and We just had a party in the street, just danced and made oh, ourselves wow. visible. Um, so we've made a name for ourselves and we and we won in October. We won, was it October or November? We won the Pride Gala Award for positive impact to the community. Right? And this is like a year in, less than a year in. And we've had loads of people approaching us to collaborate because clearly there was a need. Yeah. And we've made a community, there's a community. So all the young black queer folk who are there just all emerged. There is now some form of community that's visible. To close, I ask all my guests yeah. the same question. What do you hope for? Oh, crumbs. Uh, what, I, what really hurts my heart currently is the lack of dialogue between all the different factions because that's what it feels like has become in our LGBTQ community. I would like somehow for less kind of a less less vitriol and uh, it feels like there's a lot of trauma mm. we've all we're all really traumatized and whenever we get into any kind of conversation with each other it's like all oh, the anger comes but directed at each other and I feel like we've been turned against each other and there's some sort of agenda going on so while we're all busy arguing about all of these issues we're being shafted by the people who have the power mm. And we're too busy infighting to direct our attention to the thing that's actually creating the oppression to all, for all of us. I would love for us to find ways of communicating with each other that don't end up setting up more barriers and more division. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. That was a really beautiful conversation. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Linda Devo is an artist, mentor, mother, and teacher who founded Kiki, a club night and conversation for QTPOC in Bristol. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. festivities begin with a real five to seven foot Nordman Christmas tree for only 15 pounds. Home base feels good to be home while stocks last.